Let's see, let me just read a passage from Matthew that maybe, perhaps, possibly you've heard before. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let me just pray for us, and then we will dig in to have some fun this morning. God, thank you for this time we have together. Thanks for your word to us that we would not know how to navigate this life without. And so thank you for that. We ask that you would just uh, encourage us this morning, teach us something, uh, guide us into what you want us to be and do, even in the coming holiday season. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, well we are starting our Christmas series uh, this week. We're going to close out 2022 with it. Uh, we're going to zero in on, as Eve mentioned, the three specific gifts that the wise men brought as they worshiped Jesus as king. They didn't worship him as some future king, but as the king right now, as God right now. Uh, we do not know how the gifts went over with Jesus, hopefully better than we saw on the screen earlier. Uh, did, Jesus, did Jesus want something different than they brought? Did he, did he pitch the stuff across the room? I don't know. We don't know what he did. We do know that these gifts were kind of hand-picked to reflect some aspects of the mission that Jesus came to earth to accomplish. So the wise men obviously had some understanding of this king, this Messiah. Now, uh, when I read Scripture, I do believe it's God's Word, no question. But that does not mean I don't have questions in trying to grasp what's, what it's saying. Is that familiar territory for anybody else here? <laughs> or I'm the only one, right? When you read something in Scripture, do you sometimes think, man, I wonder what that's all about. I wonder what that means. I wonder what the significance of that is. That seems like such an insignificant point. Why does God even include it? I wonder how this reads in other translations. I wonder where else in the Bible this word or phrase pops up. How was it used elsewhere? Could that be a clue to what it might mean here? So anyway, that's, that's how I typically roll. So here we are today reading some standard verses. My guess is we've all probably heard dozens, if not hundreds of times, depending on how long you've lived, right? And the first dilemma I have as I read this passage you just read is this. Where in the world did the song, We Three Kings of Orient, are come from? Because neither the term magi or wise men translates anywhere I can find as king. So, the words that used magi, in fact, didn't show up until about 1200 A.D. So, we three kings? Probably not. Instead, wise men. Okay, what does that mean? The earliest occurrence I could find of a reference to wise men is in Genesis 41.8. Egypt's Pharaoh has a dream, and he calls the, quote, magicians and wise men, end quote, to interpret it. They cannot. Ah, but there's Joseph in, to the rescue. We see the term surface again in Exodus chapter 7, verse 11, when we're told that Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers 
described a few verses later in that passage as the magicians of Egypt. This is during the plagues when God is trying to get the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and he sent Moses. So there were some plagues popping. Now the uh, wise men, these sorcerers, all those guys, they were able to duplicate turning their staves into serpents. And in Exodus 7.20, they also succeeded into turning water into blood through their quote-unquote secret arts. In Exodus 8.7, they also produced frogs as God did through Moses and Aaron. Now, in hindsight, and as impressive as that was, I think turning more potable water into blood and producing more frogs, both of which simply only enhanced the plague that God sent, probably didn't improve the situation in Egypt very much. I, I do notice this. They were not able to turn the blood back into potable water, nor they, could they get rid of the frogs. Right? Okay, back to our digging in on the wise men. We get some added insight on the whole concept of wise men in the book of Daniel. The Babylonian Empire, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, has now conquered the two remaining tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin, carting off the best and the brightest into Babylon. Daniel is among the, those who are exiled into Babylon. Daniel receives the best training, the best education possible anywhere in the world at that point. Uh, at one point, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. And in Daniel chapter 2, he summons the, quote, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, all described a little bit later as, as a composite, the wise men of Babylon. Their task, do two things. Tell the king what the dream was that the king dreamed, and two, tell the king the interpretation of the dream that the king dreamed. If they don't, they're all going to die. Well, they can't do it. It turns out the Chaldeans are the ones who are pressing the issue with the king about how no one on earth can do with it this thing you just asked us to do. The king does not care. He orders all the wise men to be killed by tearing them limb from limb. And while you're at it, destroy their homes. Not that they're going to be living there anymore. They've all been torn limb from limb. But this would include Daniel, who, because of his solid reputation, convinces the hit squad to hold off on the blood fest while he goes to the king to see if he might be able to take care of the king's request. And, of course, we know God comes through. As a result, the king makes Daniel the ruler over all the province of Babylon and puts him in charge of the wise men of Babylon. Now, given Daniel's faith, do you think he might have had some influence on those wise men? Now, in this passage, back in Daniel, we find that the Chaldeans is often rendered as astrologers in other translations. Now, if you see the word astrologers show up in your translation, in your, like your study Bible, you can typically find a footnote below that will say, or Chaldeans, so kind of whatever. Obviously, they've developed some special skills, among them astrology. They spend a lot of time watching the night sky. Now, we've heard of the Chaldeans before, right? Abraham was called by God to leave the Ur of the Chaldeas, where the Chaldeans lived, 
and go to a land that God would show him, which would turn out to be the promised land. Chaldeans are people who lived in what we now call southern Iraq, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The region of Babylon, when they became a world power, ended up with several Chaldean kings. What they seem to specialize in by the time Jesus shows up is astrology. We know that they plotted everything in the night sky for hundreds of years. By the way, it was the Chaldeans who ratted out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, for not bowing to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, which led to that you know, fiery furnace experience. So the Babylonian Empire had expert astrologers, and the Persians also had astrologers, Zoroastrians. But the interesting thing is this. Daniel had incredible influence and status, not only during the four kings of Babylon, but also during the reigns of the Persian kings, Darius and Cyrus. So, okay. Here's another question I had. Both Babylon and Persia had astrologers in the mix of their wise men. So let's say that some new weird star shows up in the sky, or a comet, or some new thing that gets their attention. I get it why they would pay attention to that. But why in the world would they pack up and head to Jerusalem? Why that destination? And the reason I ask is because I was sitting outside, as Jackie and I often do, after dark, into pitch black, we don't turn all the lights on, nothing. We just sit there chatting. And up in the sky, I see this really bright star. At least it looks like a star. It's so bright, I suspect it might actually be an aircraft. But as I keep watching, it does not move. It is a star. And I tell you this because if someone asked me, what city on planet Earth is that star millions of miles away hovering over? I would not be able to answer that question. No idea. Closest thing I could come to is probably a city currently on the half of the globe that's in the dark right now. Other than that, no clue. And that got me thinking some more. Now, the last few chapters of the book of Daniel include specific prophecies about the future. And Daniel got these prophecies sometime between 605 B.C. and 536 B.C. That's about 500-plus years before Jesus shows up. And several of those prophecies, by the time Jesus has shown up, have already come to pass before Jesus appears. So I imagine that that got the attention of the wise men. We know that the wise men had required readings of all manner of sacred writings. So it wouldn't be hard to surprise that Daniel's book was part of that required reading. And of course, we know that Daniel recorded everything. After all, we can read the book of Daniel. (laughs) If we have it, so did the wise men who were under Daniel's supervision in Babylon and beyond. And given his status in Persia, my guess is that the book of Daniel would have been required reading for the wise men in Persia too. Now, the wise men in Persia would have also been interested in another sacred writing from the Jewish Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Why? Because Cyrus, the Persian king, is actually mentioned by name, and the men in the men's group know this, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah in chapters 44 and 45. This is way before the Persians even became a world power and 150 years or more before Cyrus is even born. And we know this from Josephus, a Jew who chronicled Jewish history for the Roman emperors, that Cyrus was actually shown by Jewish religious leaders 
that prophecy in Isaiah about himself. So God declares in that prophecy that Cyrus will accomplish God's purposes by ordering the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, and that he would be a subduer of nations. In fact, the clock in the prophecy of Daniel about the arrival of the Messiah begins with Cyrus's authorization for the Jews to build, rebuild Jerusalem. And interestingly, history records for us the exact day, the exact month, and the exact year for Cyrus making that authorization. Eventually, of course, the Persians are replaced as the world power by Alexander the Greek, or Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And by the time Jesus is born, Jews had scattered all over the empire, establishing synagogues with religious leaders, continuing to study, discussing scriptures. By that time, most Jews didn't speak Hebrew anymore. They speak Aramaic, which they learned in Babylonian exile, which had been spoken by, you might have guessed it, the Chaldeans. And many Jews also learned Greek when the Greeks came to power. And with permission of the Greek rulers down in Egypt, the Israelites translated their Hebrew Bible into Greek so everybody on the common street could actually read it. Okay, all very interesting, at least to me. But why head to Jerusalem? Why go to Jerusalem? Well, one of the prophecies in Daniel that he received was during the first year of the reign of the Persian king Darius. It's in Daniel chapter 9. And that's a fascinating little chapter. It lays out the specific timetable and the specific week that the Messiah, the anointed one, would surface in Jerusalem. They had no doubt worked out the math on the calendar and knew that something was in the works. Plus, with Jews all over the place and the anticipation running rampant in Jerusalem and Israel about the arrival of this Messiah sometime around the time Jesus was born, that would have had the wise men on the lookout, including astrologers, scanning the night skies. And when the star appeared, that's all they needed. Is it possible that some of those wise men, still influenced by Daniel, were chomping at the bit to come to faith in Jesus and to see him in person? We do not know other than this. When they arrived, they worshipped him. You don't worship a newborn. You, You worship God. So here's a tidbit you might find interesting, and a photo on the screen just to kind of ponder. There was actually a Chaldean Christian community in Michigan that was actively seeking to avoid deportation back to Iraq in 2019, fearing a death sentence there. So perhaps Daniel's influence continues to bear fruit to this day. So with that musing on the wise men of Babylon as a a backdrop. Let me just dig into the gifts that they brought to honor Christ. The context, Matthew chapter 2, is this. Jesus, born in Bethlehem during the reign of King Herod, the wise men from the east, which could have been from Babylon, Persia, maybe even as far away as Arabia, they show up in Jerusalem. If the Jews were expecting a Messiah to show up in Jerusalem, probably be a good place to start the search. Maybe somebody there knows where he is. Here's another question. How many wise men were there? Anybody hazard a guess? How many people have a nativity scene? Seen one in your grandma's house? How many wise men were there? Always three. Always three. How many wise men were there? We don't know. We tend to think there might be three because they only had three gifts. But the reality is we have no idea 
Could have been dozens. They probably traveled in a caravan. Could have been a bunch of them. We just don't know. What we do know for sure is that these wise men would have been highly educated, and they were also very excited to meet this one who might be the savior of the world. Matthew 2.10 tells us that. When they saw the star, they were excited, and they decided they had to find him and worship him. When they entered the house, not, not the barn, not the cave with the manger, they entered the house and saw the child with his mother. They bowed down and worshiped Jesus. We know that Joseph had relatives in Bethlehem. That's why he had to go back there for the census. So he had relatives. That's where, where he's from. That's hometown. So he had to leave, go there. So that might explain the house part. Timing-wise, this encounter with the wise men could have happened maybe a year, maybe even more after Jesus' birth. Okay. If you want to know why I think that, you can join the Zoom call tonight where we have time for questions and comments. We'll deal with it then. Okay, so then they opened up their treasures. He gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Here you have these pagan Gentiles taking this long trek to get to Christ. What's interesting to me is that they're in Jerusalem with all the prophecies through history in Scripture, in the Old Testament, about the Messiah. Isn't it interesting that no one who would have been considered a wise man in the nation of Israel could be bothered? to venture the six miles to check out this Messiah. Wouldn't you have thought that at least a couple of them would have said to these uh, wise men from the east, hey, uh, would it be okay with you if we, if we come along to check this out with you? No, it didn't happen. The Jewish leader's rejection of Christ, I would contend, began at his birth. And as we've taught through the Gospel of John, we have just seen it continue to play out through his whole ministry. Okay, back to the gifts. Now, admittedly, when Jackie and I had three kids, we received no gold, no frankincense, and no myrrh. All right? What in the world kind of gifts are these? When we had babies, we got diapers, we got, we got onesies, we got, we got nooks, and we got the ever-important, all-purpose baby snot sucker. Right? To make it sound nicer, they would call it an aspirator. Sorry, it, it's a snot sucker. To make it sound nicer, right? And they call it something else. Very important gift. Long nozzle, a bulb on the end. You hold on to, you squeeze the air out of the bulb, and then you stick the long nozzle into the baby's nose, which they love so much. Okay? And once you get it in there, you release your grip on the bulb part, bulb part, and it sucks air back in along with baby snot. It was a delight, delightful fun that everybody in the family enjoyed. I mean, who thought this was a good idea? I don't know. If you don't know what I'm talking about, your baby, past, present, or future, thanks you. Right? All, all that to say, the wise men did not bring a baby snot sucker as a gift. That's why they were probably wise men. So gold, frankincense, myrrh. May not sound all that great, but these gifts were not only valuable, they were incredibly practical, and maybe even more important, and I think why it's included in our scriptures they were deeply spiritual. In fact, all Bible scholars that actually believe the Bible agree that these gifts were not only useful for the family, but, uh, we'll tell you why as we go through the weeks, but they also foreshadowed some images of what Jesus would actually represent. Gold, valuable in itself, represents the kingship of Christ. Myrrh, we'll talk about next week, uh, represents Jesus as the suffering servant, and then um, uh, frankincense we're going to talk about today. Now, before I tell you the meaning of frankincense, let me tell you a little bit about frankincense. According to my essential oil advisors, 
<clears throat> frankincense is an oil. It's kind of like a Swiss Army knife. In other words, it's got lots and lots of utility and purposes. I don't know much about essential oils. I know an itty-bitty bit. Jackie has an essential oils in diffuser into which she puts something like lavender, which is a really cool, kind of a pleasant way to go to sleep. So I had to do some research. I found out that some oils, like peppermint, are supposed to be good for your tummy. And I appreciate Jackie because she doesn't get oils that smell bad, so I don't have to endure those. But let me tell you what I know about frankincense after my it's lengthy research. According to my in-depth research, it possesses, frankincense does, these properties. It's an antiseptic. It can kill bacteria. It's an astringent, which helps the skin to tighten. So you, you and I will sag less, I guess. It's a carminative, which means it can, it can reduce the gas you might produce by eating spicy foods. It's a diuretic. It can help the body expel excess fluids. It's a sedative. If you're awake, you know what that means. It tones and strengthens the uterus. And I guess given the philosophies we have around here, that, that could be applicable to everybody, men and women, in this current age. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, okay. finally, frankincense contains this. Vulnerary therapeutic properties. Does that make sense? In English, it helps boo-boos heal. All right. So what does a pastor do all week long besides preach on Sundays? We look up stuff like this. That's what we do. All right. What I do know is this. Frankincense, really expensive, but it's practical, and it helps heal sickness and treat wounds. However, more to the point for today, it's the oil that the priests would burn during sacrifices to produce the smoke that would go heavenward, symbolizing the prayers of the people rising in faith to God. And that's why Bible scholars agree that frankincense represents the priesthood of Christ, which we're going to talk about today, Jesus, our high priest. Now, some of you, if you weren't raised Catholic or such, you might be confused right now. How could, how could Jesus, why would he be called the high priest? Good question. So we want to dig in, lay it out for you. Okay, Jesus the high priest. Now, the priest in Scripture served one big primary role that's kind of broken down into two functions. The priest essentially would be the representative of God's people before God. I'm going to represent you before God. So first, the priest would make sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. They did this all year long, right? They would take an innocent animal. That, that would, in my estimation, exclude cats, right? The whole Broadway show, Cats, still rattles around in my mind. Felines have always got some ulterior motive at work. That's what you could tell by that, 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 that Broadway show. So if you've got cats, you know this to be true, I think. You can like them, you can love them, but you're never quite totally sure what's going on inside of them, right? So Innocent? Probably not. Okay, so the priest would take an innocent animal, lamb, a dove, something like that, without a blemish to sacrifice to acknowledge to God, before God, that the people have sinned and they're shedding this innocent blood, which was necessary to atone for or pay for the sin that would be then forgiven by God. Secondly, the priest would pray prayers on behalf of the people to God, representing the people to God that way. So I want to talk about those two functions for a second as we see Jesus our high priest, in those sacrifices and in those prayers. We'll start with the sacrifices for our sins. Since the very first moment in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, there were two opposing forces, right? The holiness of God and the, the, other, the other sinfulness of mankind. Now, admittedly, in our culture today, a lot of people don't want to talk about sin, don't want to acknowledge sin, don't want to admit that, that sin even exists. They might say things like, well, I made a mistake, I made an error, 
but they hardly ever want to refer to it as sin. Who's got the right, they might say, to tell me that I've sinned? If it feels good, I should be able to do it. Uh, what's good for me is good for me. What's true for me is true for me. And you, you have your own truth. You can call it sin for you if you want to, but not to me. So what do you do with your life is your business, they say. Who needs calling anything a sin? One person said this, sin is so outdated, it, it's just a term to trick children into be, being good. And then they'll say something like this, who needs to call something sin when you put an elf on the shelf? And the elf on the shelf can tell your parents when the kids have been bad, and then that they can then let Santa know who's got his list and checking it twice, right? Here's the challenge. We have to understand the reality of sin and the holiness of God. If we don't understand those two things, we'll probably always have a fairly casual approach to sin. Until we really understand what it means that God is holy, we'll never really realize the cost and tragedy of what sin does to us. So God's holy. What does it mean? The word holy comes from the Greek word agios, which means separate. It means other. What is God? He is transcendentally something else. He's separate. He's perfect in every single way. He's flawless, pure, with no fault, no sin, no stain in him. He's other, other than us, different than us. He's separate. So we need to understand that holiness probably is not just an attribute of God. It's probably the combination of all his attributes together. His power is holy. His grace is holy. His mercy is holy. His glory is holy. It's holiness, right? He, other one, separate. Makes him worthy of our praise to be that different, that unique. Uh, here's the problem. Our God is holy, and you and I are not. None of us are. Not me, not a single one of you, not even a married one of you, right? Scripture teaches that every one of us have sinned. We've done something wrong that offends God's standards, fall short of his standard. And sin breaks our intimacy with the holy God. We're actually born that way. We don't, have, we don't walk out of the womb. Do we walk out of the womb? We don't come out of the womb. We're not spurted out of the womb, whatever you want to call it. As a, in connection with God, we have a sin nature. That's why God hates sin, because it screws up everything. It screws up our relationship with him and with each other. God hates it. Now, the priest in the Old Testament, one time a year would make a sacrifice as a temporary payment for the sins of all the people of Israel. It was known as the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. On that day, high priest would sacrifice an innocent animal, go into the tabernacle, go in behind the veil, into the place known as the Holy of Holies. He would then light the frankincense, and the burning incense would let smoke rise figuratively to heaven, representing the cries of the people to God for mercy because of their sins. Then the priest would take the blood of the innocent animal and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Now, that's interesting because the mercy seat sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was a couple of things. Most important for our purposes is got the, it's got the tablets that God gave Moses with the Ten Commandments. So the law sits in the Ark. Above the Ark is the mercy seat. And then God would see as he looked down, as he appeared, looked down uh, on the ark, he would see the law and see all the violations of the people against that law. And then the priest would take this blood of the innocent animal and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. The entire thing was symbolizing the death of an innocent one, a sinless one, as a payment for the sin of the guilty ones. The sacrifice was actually looking forward to not just a temporary payment that had to be done every single year, but a permanent payment for those sins, the one that Jesus Christ, also called the Lamb of God, 
would make for us. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he was also paying for the sins of those in the Old Testament times who had placed their faith in this Messiah that God promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Not, they weren't basing their faith on their goodness or on their ability to keep the law because no one had ever kept the law to perfection. Jesus also paid for the sins of all the New Testament saints who placed their faith in the Messiah that we now know is Jesus Christ. Then, you ever heard the term scapegoat? Scapegoat? Somebody's a scapegoat? Yeah. The Bible's where that term came from. Here's what would happen next. The priest would take a goat, an innocent goat. I'm trying to think, is there such a thing? I guess there is an innocent goat, at least one. And they, he would confess the sins of the people, and while he lays his hands on the goat, it was symbolizing that he's placing those sins onto the goat. And then they would drive that goat out of the city until it utterly disappeared, symbolizing that this innocent animal whose blood had been spilt uh, on the Ark, on the Ark of the Covenant, is, is resulted in the sins of the people being removed from God's presence, removed from their account. So some innocent animal bears the sin away. Now, that all sounds a little weird, right? <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit bloody. If you've never heard this before, take a cute little animal, you slit its throat, blood pours into a bucket, and you sprinkle that on the mercy seat, and then you pray. It's weird. A little weird. A little extreme, maybe. Kind of gross. It seems maybe unfair to have an innocent little animal dying in our place. And it seems weird to figuratively place the sins of the people onto a scapegoat and then drive it away. Who would come up with something like that? What we have to understand is this. God is holy, but he's also just, completely just and perfectly fair. He must punish sin. But God's not only just, he's also merciful. And here's the beauty of what God does. The sacrifice satisfies God's demand for justice. And at the same time, it allows him to extend mercy. It's the price that's paid, but someone else pays the price for the forgiveness of our sins. So God's holiness, his justice gets satisfied, and it also allows him to extend mercy to the people that he, even though we don't understand why, loves so much. So this was a temporary covering under the old covenant. You and I are now under the new covenant. And as meaningful as the Old Testament sacrifices were, and scapegoats and all that stuff, they were really only just pictures of what Jesus would do for real. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, tells us a little bit about our great high priest. His name is Jesus, he's the Son of God, and by his sacrifice on the cross, well, Hebrews 10 tells us. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, not every year, not every six months, not every month, not every week, once and for all. In other words, Jesus' sacrificial death for us, by that we have been sanctified or declared righteous or declared holy. Who feels like they're really holy today? <laughs> not me. <laughs> But when God sees us by our faith in Christ, he sees us through the lens of Jesus' shed blood and the fact that he's given us the credit of having Jesus' righteousness. We're no longer carrying that guilt around. Death doesn't affect us anymore. It's the eternal death doesn't. God's will, says, was for us to be made holy. Now, we're not made holy in and of ourselves. We don't work our way to get there because it says if you violate, here's the law, it's a big bunch of stuff. 
violate even one point of the law, you might as well have broken it all. You have to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. But God said, I want want a holy people. So by the sacrifice of the body of Christ, once for all time, under the covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again and again every year, every year, every year. They never can really completely take away sin. They all just kind of temporarily cover it. It's just a stopgap measure. People knew that God had promised to send a Messiah and to take care of sin once and for all. Our high priest, that high priest, it's interesting. He's the high priest. He's also the sacrifice. He's the sinless one, the innocent one of all crimes against God who offers himself to God as payment. And God says, I'll accept that. I'll accept that. You're not dying for yourself. Jesus' sacrifice is not a temporary covering, but he as high priest offered his life, shedding his blood to cover our sins permanently, satisfying the justice of God, but also allowing God to extend mercy to the creation he made that fell. So based on your faith in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see the sin you've committed. He accepts Jesus' sacrifice as an innocent lamb to pay for our sins. Now for that to work, right, Jesus could not have committed any sin. We all there? Had he committed even one sin, the best he could do is die for his own sin, not ours. So God treats Jesus like sin, like we deserve to be treated, like sinners. And when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, God now sees us through the lens of the righteousness of Christ. And our sin is taken away, like the scapegoat ran into the desert. Sin is gone, because Jesus paid the price. Now, the other thing happens, Jesus prays to God for the people, the priest does. Jesus isn't done by just sacrificing himself on the cross. As our high priest, he is not some distant savior that sits around feeling sorry for us. He's a high priest who understands and cares. He engages us and he engages God on behalf of us. Scripture says this about our high priest in Hebrews. Since then, we have a great high priest, not just a good good one, a great one, who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession of faith in him, right? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but everyone, but one in whom every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hope you understand this and embrace the truth that wherever you're going through, whatever you're going through, Jesus gets it. He relates to our trials. He sympathizes with our pain. Whatever you're going through, even at this very moment, he understands. He understands what you're going through. If you feel stressed right now and overwhelmed, he gets it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when his friends were about to abandon him and he knew it was coming, he fell to the ground and said, my soul is overwhelmed in agony to the point of death. That's pretty overwhelmed. If you face anxiety, he understands. If you deal with crazy people in your family, Some of you just got back from Thanksgiving, okay? Crazy people. It's a spiritual principle. Every family has some crazy. Everybody does, right? When Jesus said, I'm the Messiah, his family said, you're nuts. He gets it. He gets crazy. If you think about how much Jesus understands of human existence, you might begin to appreciate just how much he actually cares for you. He was conceived out of wedlock to a teenage mom. Scandal. Small town. You know what small towns are like. He was raised in a small town where everybody whispered about him, called him that bastard boy, right? He lived in poverty. He was criticized. He was ridiculed. I'm sure he was bullied. 
tempted by the devil again and again and again, when at his weakest and most vulnerable. Yet, he didn't depart. He did not sin. He experienced the death of a close friend. He grieved the loss of family members, no doubt. He was accused of things he did not do. His friends betrayed him. Worst of all, he felt abandoned by God himself on the cross. I don't think he was, but he sure felt that way. God looked away. When he became sin, he sort of became like the scapegoat. God looked away because God's holiness made him look away as Jesus became sin for us. And then Jesus cried out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've ever felt like you couldn't reach the presence of God, Jesus has been there. Whatever you felt, he's felt. Whatever you've hurt, he's hurt. He's your great high priest, able to sympathize. And because he does, he is not sitting in heaven going, man, it sure sucks to be you. He's not doing that. He's our high priest. He's experienced everything painful in being a human being that you can experience in life. All the emotion of being rejected, all the agony of hurting, feeling alone, feeling abandoned. I mean, and think about it. This is Jesus from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, you've got all of that going for you up in heaven. You tell me, why in the world would you come down here and experience what we experience and experience what He experienced? When you ponder that, and you ponder us. I don't know. I just have a hard time grasping how in the world God could love us that much, much less love us enough to die for us. But he does, and he did. And he cares about, which by all rights he shouldn't. And he inspired wise men to travel hundreds of miles to worship him as God, to offer gifts that declare the nature of what Jesus Christ would come to do and accomplish. In his divine providence, he sent wise men to worship Christ, to offer gifts prophetically declaring the nature of this Jesus who came. He was the high priest who offered up a perfect sacrifice himself for us. And he's the high priest who offers up prayers on our behalf. We're told he remains our advocate, our defense attorney before God even today. As Satan walks in every time you and I sin, he goes, see, guilty, deserves to die. Jesus is there defending us, saying, oh, God, I, God my father, uh, th- this is an acquittal. I've already paid for this. The sin is already taken care of. That's why Scripture is so, so important when it tells us in Hebrews, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. So what can you do, church? You can come boldly. You can come to him because he cares deeply about you. And he understands you deeply. Because of that, we can come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. And there will we receive mercy. Why? Because his justice has been satisfied. He extends mercy. And what we will find in our high priest, we'll find grace to help us, the power to help us when we need it most. Hope you get it. You can come to him today. You can come to him as you are. You can come boldly. You don't have to cower when you come to your dad. You don't have to be afraid. A little respect, not a bad thing. But when you come to them, you don't have to pray in King James language. When my kids were little, they would just pounce on me. <laughs> they'd jump in my lap. They'd fling themselves onto me. If I lay on the floor, I had to be really careful because they would, they would crush me, right? They'd pounce on me. They'd sneak up on me. Same with the grandkids now. They're, 
They're not afraid. They come boldly. We can go there with God who loves us. So why don't we take the opportunity as we take communion to just go before God and talk to him as we move in a time of communion. So we can bring this stuff up. Let me pray for us out of here. God, thank you for this time we've spent. Thanks for the fun we've had, but also thanks for maybe the things we've learned and maybe the things that we appreciate in a slightly different way. We sort of knew this stuff before, but at the same time, it's good to hear it again. It's good to think about it again. It's good to remind ourselves of who you are, what you were, what you did for us, how you came here, just because you loved us and you knew you were going to do it from the creation of the world. It's more amazing. And what you accomplished, no one else could accomplish. You were the only one. You were the only way we could get reconnected to you and your Father and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that. As we take communion, we bless your name. We thank you. We ask you to take a hold of us, even during this Christmas season. Make us be what you want us to be. Show us, train us, teach us, move in us. Make us what we're supposed to be. Declare us holy. Maybe we should be working towards becoming that in real life. A little bit more like you every day, every week. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.